Welcome to Grad Chat by PhD Balance, where we talk about um, topics of grad school that are beyond our academic research and that may be more difficult to talk about in our day-to-day -day lives. I'm your host, Linda Corcoran, and I'm a research master's student at in food science at University College Cork. Um, as you may have noticed, I am not Phelan or usual host. And if you missed it, um, Grad Chat is getting a bit of a revamp. We are going to have some new hosts and you can check the PhD Balance website for more information. Our topic today is talking about transitions and I am very excited to um, welcome our guest, Fatima. Um, Fatima completed a PhD in biomedical sciences before transitioning disciplines to do a postdoc researching ECR training spaces and developing mentor training interventions. And she's currently working as a research assistant at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the same area. But changing disciplines is not the only transition that has happened in Fatima's life. There's been several and we are going to talk about some and all of them. Um, so Welcome, Fatima. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Um, thanks for that introduction. Um, it's been a little bit of a wild week for me um, in that it was uh, the end of Ramadan, uh, you know, all the stuff happening um, with the Israeli violence on Palestine and um, submitting a grant um, and then personal stuff having to do with transition. So if I'm a little bit scatterbrained, uh, feel free to bring me back into the, uh, the topic of conversation. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Fatima. Um, I use she, her, and he, him program, but programs, pronouns. <laughs> um, uh, you can feel free to use those interchangeably. Um, and I um, currently love what I do uh, in academia. That wasn't always the case. I think like a lot of folks, I struggled with um, the way that academia is structured, the culture in academia, the way that early career researchers are trained, um, just everything to do with this uh, sort of weird blend of um, neolib capitalistic, uh, you know, white supremacist culture that uh, claims itself to be objective scientific inquiry based uh, when it is really heavily influenced by culture and um, so yeah, as, as you mentioned, I mean, my, my whole life has been um, to some degree uh, a, a journey in transitioning in, in different aspects of my life. I will say that, you know, anything that I say today is, is just, uh, you know, a factor of my own experience um, and um, not really meant in any way to encompass what is the trans experience, the queer experience, the Mexican-American experience. Um, but I, I mean, I, so I moved to the U.S. when I was nine. Um, I speak more than one language. Uh, my two major ones, fluent ones, are English and Spanish. Um, I am a creative writer. I, I did um, an undergrad degree in English as well as biomedical engineering. So I do some creative writing on the side, mostly magic realism, sometimes some, some fantasy as well. Um, and I am someone who is very spiritual, uh, faith-based. Um, and also very scientific. Um, and so I, I feel, I always feel like I found myself the perfect metaphor, I think, for my entire life. Uh, oh, I should also mention, I'm also autistic, uh, since we're talking mental health as well. And, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about diagnoses as well. 
Um, I've always felt like I'm at this border and I'm straddling it, right? I've got one foot on one side of it and another foot on the other. Um, and I'm either moving back and forth myself uh, to interact with folks on either side. I am bridging people forth from one side to the other, or I am in some way translating for people. Um, I like that about me. I've only come into that very recently, I would say in the last five uh, to 10 years of, of my life uh, as I've sort of discovered myself and tried to break free from a lot of the um, things that people told me I should be rather than who I knew myself to be. Um, with regards to, to what I do in my career and how that's applicable to, to what we're talking about today, I got very interested in grad school about uh, around training environments. I started to do a lot of um, sort of on the side research um, on sort of pop psych, um, you know, educational psychology, organizational psychology, really looking at what the best practices were for training people, for running organizations, very quickly realizing that um, grad school wasn't doing that <laughs> for us. <laughs> at least the majority of grad schools weren't doing that for us. And then got involved with advocacy, uh, first with my own blog, then through Future Research, which I'm now the president of. Um, which led into my postdoc and my current job, which, as you mentioned, um, it's really, really cool because I get to um, work with some of the experts in the field of, of mentoring and early career research training environments. Um, it means I get to use my research to um, inform my advocacy, which in turn informs my research, and the same goes for you know, all of the curricula that we um, implement and develop. So I've gotten to develop curricula for mentor training that um, focuses on well-being. I've gotten to develop curricula specifically for postdocs. Um, I've gotten to work with some really cool people, both through Future Research and at UW-Madison. So right now, um, I found myself really privileged and blessed um, to be in such a supportive environment with such a great team that really walks the walk. And I realize I just threw a lot at you there. So I'm happy to pick at any and all of those threads if you are um, so inclined. I know we already have some questions from the audience. So um, I really would love to, yeah, just hear where you're at <laughs> with all of I that. I know, that is, that was, that was so many different things I could touch on there. Um, all of it amazing, I suppose. Um, personally I resonated more with the feeling like you're at a crossroads and you're between two things um especially because I'm also diagnosed as autistic and both of us were diagnosed as adults um so that can be it's something that comes up commonly I think mm -hmm. for autistic adults but um I guess before we get on to all of that one thing we did want to kind of address for some people who may not be used to it is um do you want to talk about your perspective of using both the binary pronouns of she her and he him because <laughs> many people will not have come across it before <laughs> yeah oh this is such a rich topic i could spend an entire hour on this um i think the 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 place really to start is um for a long time, I've known myself to be bigendered, um, and for that to come from a very spiritual place, uh, being a very spiritual person. Um, I still have yet to untangle whether it is because I grew up and developed in a country that speaks a language that is very binarily gendered, 
um, or if it is something that is intrinsic to who I am and my identity. And some, in some ways, it doesn't necessarily matter as much right now. I've gotten through the angst of trying to pick at why it is that, that I feel this way. But when I started to uh, explore gender fluidity, gender fuckery, as it were, if you'll excuse the, the language, I mean, it is a very, it's, it's an actual term that's used um, to describe sort of the way that some people approach um, gender. Um, when I started to explore that about, uh, let's see, it must have been 2016, so about five or uh, six years ago now, uh, feeling really at this crossroads, as you mentioned, and before I was even um, exposed, really, because I was so sheltered and, and grew up in such a traditional household, to anything queer or, or non-binary. Um, and I started to explore all of these things. Non-binary never really felt like it fit for me because it felt very much agendered as opposed to bi-gendered, which is how I felt. Um, I later learned more about non-binariness and, and it being sort of this umbrella term to encompass a lot of people's experiences with gender that falls outside of or encompasses all aspects of the, the gender binary. Um, but I had a friend, I remember this moment specifically, we were at karaoke night celebrating a friend's um, birthday, and I had a friend ask me if um, I wanted uh, her to start referring to me with they, them pronouns, and I had a very visceral gut reaction. My stomach just did this like, <laughs> and for the longest time I thought, oh gosh, it must be because I can't even start to fathom how that would work in Spanish. Even though in Spanish, you know, non-binary people that, that like the, the non-gender pronouns use the, the E at the end for, for, for L, right? Um, and for adjectives. But for the longest time, just that did not feel like my experience. And so there were a couple of times I've read some wonderful, wonderful queer uh, and trans literature where people play around with pronouns in a way that um, that encompasses both. Uh, so, you know, the S slash H E I was using for some time because I really, really liked that um, until I found out that people just understood that to mean that I was using she uh, and she, her and he, him interchangeably, which I kind of do, but I was also pronouncing that as he. Um, and then there's all the, the neo pronouns, right? And so I've, I've settled for this reality of like, in cis spaces, um, you know, I want people to recognize that my, my transition, my experience, uh, my, my life, uh, it's not that of a, of a binary trans woman necessarily, it's not that of a cis man, um, it's very encompassing of this sort of fluidity and or um, existence in the, in the middle of a binary, if such a binary were to exist. Um, and for the longest time, I was ashamed or embarrassed of that because I didn't want to assert myself in that way and give um, uh, trans exclusionists or transphobic folks um, sort of ways to weaponize my existence or to use my existence as ammunition for um, uh, the erasure of the, the uh, binary trans women and binary trans men's existence and their sort of, you know, uh, the, that they are who they are um, and, and that, you know, trans men are men and trans women are women. Um, I didn't want people to say, oh, well, look at her, you know, she's both man and woman. So uh, clearly that means that every trans person uh, is not who they say that they are, right? Um, so that's sort of the long way of saying, you know, uh, she, her, he, him is, is my way of, of both throwing people off in terms of their assumptions that they're making about me 
um, as well as asserting who I am myself and my experience in Spanish. It works beautifully um, for me, way better than uh, the E pronouns uh, and adjectives do. Um, I love it when I'm talking to friends and family and both they and I refer to myself using O and A adjectives interchangeably in sentences. Um, I feel like that really captures um, me. Sometimes my sadness feels very feminine and sometimes my sadness feels very masculine in the same way that sometimes my anger feels very masculine and very feminine in Spanish. So my state of being is very gendered in Spanish by the very virtue of the language being gendered um, and therefore me being able to express myself in twice as many ways as I used to when you know I was using uh, only one uh, or the other. Uh, in queer spaces, I play around with a lot of neo-pronouns. Uh, currently I use uh, C, S, E, um, and, then, and then M, E, M, and E, R, S, ERS uh, for the possessive and the uh, objective cases. Um, I think that's right, yes, my high school English teacher I don't know if they would be proud of me or not, and <laughs> that at least I've got my grammar right. I think that's the, the objective case, yes. Because um, that feels cool and great and, and safe to explore. Um, I still don't feel comfortable using neo pronouns uh, in, in non-queer and non-cis spaces. So those are the, the pronouns. So yeah, so for, for folks who, who uh, address me with she, her, um, great, fantastic. If you address me as he, him, uh, because you're assuming that I'm a cis man, not fantastic. Uh, you should check yourself. Um, but also, I don't need um, a thousand and one apologies and you very visibly trying to <laughs> make the she, her clear after you've screwed up with the he, him, uh, because those are my pronouns. I do use he, him pronouns um, on a regular basis to refer to my past selves, to refer to my current self. Um, so yeah. Thanks so much for covering all that. <laughs> that was a lot. Um, yeah, no, I um, I completely get it. Um, I've been playing around with pronouns myself for maybe about a year now. And it can be very complicated when you're trying to figure out what suits you and what doesn't and why mm -hmm. you want to keep things. Um, a lot of people say to me, you know, I identify as non-binary. Why are you keeping the she? Um, mm -hmm. and I'm questioning myself. I'm like, do I want to appear and a plea, please all of these transphobic people right. and just fly under the radar or am I okay with the she? And that's definitely, um, a lot of conversation that I've had with myself trying to figure that out. Um, I'm right. not a hundred not a hundred percent whether I like it or not at the moment, but, um, I'm, I'm sticking with it. We'll, we'll see if it stays. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, one of the most wonderful things that I've gotten to experience in trans spaces, and I don't know if the same experience is, is for you, but at least one of the things that I've noticed, particularly with non-binary folk, is that a lot of times the gender as perceived by others and the gender as perceived by self doesn't need to align necessarily, um, i.e. The, the, the way that we move through the world and others perceive us does not need to be the same as the way that we perceive ourselves in isolation and in complete privacy. And, um, you know, those sometimes align and that's beautiful. Sometimes they don't and that's just as beautiful. And I think as long as people respect how we're walking through the world, right, and, and who we are, um, yeah. then that's great. But I, like you, I mean, and I was very much in denial um, and just talking to my therapist about being trans, um, 
I remember the stress that it would be walking into a room and having everyone give their pronouns and say their pronouns. I would be like, oh, I haven't even begun to scratch that surface. And here I am expected to tell you definitively which pronouns I'm using. Oh, gosh. So anyway, um, yeah, they are. I think they are. They are very, very important. And they are also um, a, a tool. Right, uh, uh, a thing we use in speech and in language, um, and they are quirky to each language. Some of which are very, very gendered; others, which are not at all. So. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I know people are getting more aware of pronouns, and that's great. Um, not so much of the neo pronouns; they're very queer-only spaces, um, mm -hmm. not accepted. Uh, but I guess. We have so much to talk about that we should probably move on to another topic <laughs> because there's a lot um, to talk about with transitions, with even we could talk for a year about transgender experiences, yours, mine, general misconceptions in the cis world of academia. Um, mm. But I guess before we leave it, it's I guess, what is your experience in specifically academia and in the US of trying to, of dealing with your transition in academia? Um, I know it can be a varied experience mm -hmm. for people. Um, what, is, what is yours like? Yeah, I mean, and I'd love to hear uh, from you as well if you're open to sharing. I've, I've been very, very, very privileged. Um, I, in the sense that I started to transition openly, um, socially, um, very, very recently, um, and did so within a context and a team that has been super, super, super supportive. Um, the biggest, you know, hurdle that I've come across has been, you know, the, the name changes on past papers and uh, trying to get the university to recognize that, you know, I, I also decided to, to change my last name and um, that that, you know, was valid, even though I haven't done it legally, um, which is still an ongoing thing. Um, so I've been very, very privileged and lucky to be in, um, in a supportive environment and with a good team. Had I transitioned in grad school, and that's one of the reasons why I, you know, remained closeted and didn't transition in grad school, among other things, is um, I wouldn't have had the same experience. Um, I also, to some degree, don't necessarily, I'm not attached to the tenure track career. Um, and so there is less of a concern that, you know, people might not, I mean, I, I still think about it when I apply for grants, you know, are people going to see um, that I'm trans because I'm openly trans, uh, you know, and in my applications, I'll talk about that. It's part of my experience. Um, and will I get dinged on a grant application? Um, that's the extent of, um, you know, for me, the, the experience beyond having just a wonderful team that, that really supports me, that gets it. I came out to my supervisors, you know, uh, two or three months before I started hormone replacement therapy. And they've been supportive since day one. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky and very privileged in that sense. 
That's great. Um, we always like to hear about supportive mm -hmm. advisors, supportive environments, whatever you have. Yeah, I definitely get it. Um, I know the replacement of names on papers is a big area of contention between um, trans academics, trans, trans grad students and um, academic publishers. Uh, it's unfortunately something that has been going on a while. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And definitely, um, I'm always happy when I hear that people have good environments, whether that just, whether it's to do with being trans, whether it's to do with having disabilities or neurodiversities or um, anything, basically just being themselves. Um, it's important. And unfortunately, it's not common enough in academia. Um, there's a lot of, lot of people um, like I've had references written for me by people that I have come out to as non-binary and they still refer to me as a woman. And I'm like, mm. no, please stop. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the main thing is that people try. And <laughs> that yeah. sounds um, very basic, but that is, that is all we're looking for. It's, <laughs> a, very low, it's a very low bar. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people still fail to jump over it um, or reach it as it would. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And um, I know you said you were super open about being trans on grant applications, which can be a very difficult decision for people. Um, I don't think I've ever been open on a grant application or any type of application. Um, I have been open about disabilities and mm -hmm. autism, though. And um, that's also a big decision for people. And um, I know you mentioned, um, well, to me, that you went through a, an autism diagnosis two years ago, did you say? No, it's been um, four now. Um, Whoa. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. I'm like, Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, it's totally fine. Do you want to talk a bit about that and how that happened and um, how it came about, I guess? <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, you know, I think it's it's the, the the cliche about autistic adults and that you always know that something is off um, and people, even though they're well-meaning, end up gaslighting you about your own experience, right? In the sense that I always knew I was uncomfortable socially. Um, I thought either everyone got it and I didn't, and I would just pretend to get it, um, or that maybe my experience was just wrong and I wasn't, you know, experiencing what I was experiencing, which is wild for someone to think like the things that I'm experiencing aren't real or they don't exist or they're not valid, right? But, you know, I had very well-meaning relatives who said, oh, you're not weird, you're normal and you're great and you're, you know, all these things which is like, without even getting into the problematic, you know, use of the word normal, but, um, you know, so, so I think, you know, I grew up as a, as a young kid struggling a lot in school, uh, behaviorally, socially, um, I'm pretty sure I have ADHD as well, um, that didn't get diagnosed when I was going through the autism diagnosis because autism was the, um, you know, focus, but there's a lot of co, you know, uh, occurrences with that. Um, and so I really struggled and in Mexico they didn't catch it. And then when we moved to the US, I got put in a gifted program. And because that seemed to 
get my attention and you know I'm uh, sort of on the high IQ end of um, of, of you know what can come with with being autistic. Uh, I don't have an intellectual disability, um, which you know we don't have time to get into the the problems of functioning labels and the harm that they do to our community as well. Um, but the reality was is that and, and IQ is also super problematic. But all of that to say, I have a really really good memory to the point where it was almost photographic when I was in school. So what what would really happen is you know I would be in um, in class, whether in high school or in, um, in in college, and I would be writing a fantasy novel. That's what I spent most of my time doing in high school and grad school. In class, was either reading books <laughs> when the teacher wasn't looking. This was pre cell phones, or at least me pre having cell phones. Playing games on my calculator or writing fantasy novels. Um, and yet, I could without studying because I would play fantasy video games when I got home, or write some more fantasy novels. Without studying, I would then, you know, show up to the test, be the first one out of that test, and get an A. So I never really understood what it was to like really, really struggle in school until I started grad school. And what what happened was in grad school, it's not at all about memorization. It's not at all about problem solving in the sense that I mean, it is problem solving, but it's by doing and by being didactic and by being really consistent and having your own schedule. I was used to like the teacher giving me the homework, me having all the assignments laid out on a syllabus, me going in, taking the test, getting the grade and, and leaving, right? And that was, that was my experience. And so my lack of executive functioning coupled with my struggles in romantic relationships at a time in my life when that started to become more important, right? I was in my mid twenties. Um, and I wanted to focus on that a little bit more, um, coupled with the fact that I was moving a lot. Um, so when I graduated undergrad, I moved to Tanzania. I was there for nine months. Then I moved to the UK. I was there for two years. Then I moved to, um, BC and I was there for two years. And now I'm, I'm here in, in Wisconsin. I've been here for two years. So it's a two, two, two pattern. Um, that left me really burnt out emotionally. Uh, on top of everything that was happening with grad school, right? And grad school can, can be a struggle for anyone emotionally with, with everything that's going on. Um, but when I was hitting the lowest of my lows in terms of emotional health, um, hitting rock bottom, um, just a content warn warning for your viewers with regards to suicidal ideation. If anyone has issues with that, I'll give them a sec to mute their microphones. Um, I, I struggled with that, uh, not their microphones, their, their, their speakers. Um, I struggled with that. I, I, I got to a really, really, really low point in, in my mental health, even as I was doing advocacy for others' mental health. Um, and I was struggling because the therapist that I was going to and the therapy that I, was, that I was attending was addressing a lot of other issues, which were great, but they weren't addressing the main issue, which was I was an autistic person, right? trying to fit myself into a neurotypical mold and or having my neurotypical, my, my closest relationships in particular, my, my romantic partnerships, trying to fit within the context of a neurotypical relationship and not giving me the space to address the needs that I as an autistic person needed in a romantic relationship in terms of space, in terms of communication, in terms of just assumptions of what was assumed and expected of me in, my, in the relationship. Um, and I very, very luckily, um, have an aunt, um, who is a therapist and 
at the time was, I mean, she still does, her specialty was um, autism uh, spectrum uh, clients in Mexico. She works at an, at an autism clinic in Mexico. And she said to me, I've known you your whole life and things didn't click because I hadn't learned or I wasn't studying or this wasn't my expertise. Now that I'm working with all of these autistic clients, maybe you should check it out. And the way that I describe it, it was um, very similar to when Bastian in The NeverEnding Story is reading the, the, the book of The NeverEnding Story and is reading about himself. And he has this moment of like, oh, shit, that's me that this book is referring to. And like the, the wind flies through the, the room and like the wolf head comes down and scares the crap out of him when he's in that old schoolhouse. Um, I had a very similar moment of reading about these experiences um, that trans or that autistic men and women were, were experiencing um, and going, oh shit, that's me, yo. <laughs> like that's my whole life and all the struggles that I've had. Um, and so that was super, super interesting. And then the diagnosis obviously came with the internalized, able, the, the ableism that I had internalized in working through that in therapy but also the ableism that my entire family had and them trying again, very well-meaning to be like, oh, you don't need to let the label define you. This isn't who you are, blah, blah, blah. And it was like, A, no, this is who I am. <laughs> the diagnosis is not a label. It's an identity that helps me, you know, develop tools to move around a world where most people don't have a brain like mine. Uh, I actually love this diagnosis and I'm very lucky and privileged to have gotten it. So please take a step back and, you know, deal with your own insecurities and your own issues before you come tell me what does or does not define me. Um, and it's been great since then. Um, my getting uh, an autism spectrum diagnosis allowed me to feel more comfortable in exploring my gender and my sexuality. Um, I did the self-diagnosis test that a lot of us do online and scored way higher on the woman's test than on the man's test. That was a light bulb moment. It was like, huh, I guess I'm an autistic woman. Interesting. Yeah, uh, definitely relate to absolutely everything you said, pretty much all of it. <laughs> Um, you know, even from the start, you know, being like, I kind of knew something was there, wasn't sure what it was, knew it was like. Um, but yeah, it was kind of the same as you. I was in therapy before I got diagnosed with autism and they were like, oh, it's just depression and maybe you're a bit sensitive and anxiety, lots of anxiety. You just need to deal with that. <laughs> And then like getting the autism diagnosis, they're like, you're a person with autism. Oh and gosh. yeah. <laughs> and you don't need to let it define you. Suitcase. Yeah, and, and take it with me wherever I go. <laughs> oh, it's um, yeah. And they're like, you don't need to let it define you. It's fine. You've got this far in life without getting diagnosed. So you're obviously fine. Like you're this high functioning. And again, to anyone watching, please don't ever call someone high functioning. Don't do it. Yeah. And, and yeah, and to, to the viewers, there's a lot of literature out there and, and sort of um, texts and blog posts from 
uh, both autistic people um, as well as autistic therapists, as well as parents who are autistic, who have autistic children, as to the harm that we do to people um, with the idea of functionality or functioning um, as opposed to a baseline without recognizing the constellation of things that come with being autistic, one of which is intellectual disability um, and nonverbality. And those are just as important parts of um, being autistic and, and the autistic community, right? And, and those members are there. And I only mention that because I know a lot of um, folks who like to advocate against the concept of neurodiversity claim that the concept of neurodiversity erases those folks who can't speak for themselves uh, verbally, uh, even though they do um, communicate in different ways um, and, um, and, and who have intellectual disability. Because we have a lot of really amazing and great self-advocates that I've learned from um, that I love and respect as, as my autistic brethren and who, you know, are just as valid and an important part of our community, um, you know, who have intellectual disability or who um, are nonverbal. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's so important to um, get involved, I think, even in the autistic community as a whole, because not only do you learn so much more about the community and about autism and being autistic in the world, you also, it does help you learn more about yourself and why you react to things in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And also um, just in general, it's a big thing for getting over your internalized ableism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both the recognition that we're not a monolith and that, you know, for a lot of us who got our diagnoses as adults because we've spent our whole lives passing, right? Because of that internalized ableism and trying to pass for, for neurotypical. Um, yeah, that there's a lot about ourselves that we rejected from when we were kids. I did some really, really powerful sort of meditation and, and sort of uh, psychosomatic work um, earlier uh, in my life. And I, there was a part of me where I came to, to, I had a conversation with little me and little me was angry as hell. Young kid me was angry as hell at myself because I, like the other kids at school said to that part of me, you're not cool, you're weird, you're strange. You can't come out and play. You have to stay hidden. Um, you're not worthy, you're, you don't exist. You shouldn't exist. Uh, you're making my life harder for existing and being who you are. And so I had to go back and actually um, do a lot of work in um, healing from that grief and that trauma of like being one of my biggest bullies and being one of my biggest critics and, and keeping so many parts of myself hidden, um, you know, and that goes for, for being queer and being trans as well, right? But um, to recognize that there were, there was so much internalization of um, the outside voices telling me that I didn't belong or that there was something wrong or broken with me. Um, and to have made that a part of my identity for so long just did so much harm to me. Uh, so you're right. I mean, in interacting with other autistic folks and, and part of our community, we're able to learn so much too about um, who, who, who we are, right? Um, and rediscover yeah. a lot of parts of us that we've um, delegated to, to places that we don't want other people to see and that we don't even want to admit to ourselves is there. Absolutely. It's, yeah, massively, massively related. 
to all that. Um, literally everything you've been saying this entire time, I'm like, this is also me. <laughs> but yeah um no I absolutely get that and for me a lot of self-acceptance definitely started with getting my autism diagnosis and I'm not even diagnosed that long but I had been in therapy unsuccessfully dropped out and went back several times before I got diagnosed and Mm -hmm. getting that acceptance and getting that working on okay there are reasons why I react this way and I shouldn't be angry at myself for doing that and there's reasons why I I acted like that in the past Mm -hmm. and I shouldn't be angry or Or relegating myself (laughs) to the not allowed to exist or think about place in our head (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um I guess one question we did get was that um, how do you think that your experience of being neurodiverse in academia or in grad school has differed from that of being a neurotypical person, which is a hard question because neither of us are neurotypical, so we don't know what that's like. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I can certainly point to the parallels, right? The stress, the anxiety, the... um you know, the iso- the sense of isolation. Um, a lot of those I think were exacerbated by my being um, neurodiverse in the sense that, you know, in some ways I wanted to be in the lab on weekends by myself with all the lights uh, off when it was rainy in Oxford, because that was my ideal, like, you know, low sensory input, I'm focusing on my task, I'm just doing experiments. Um, and so in some ways, you know, my being autistic made me the perfect, uh, and, and by perfect, I say that heavily in quotes, because it's not really um, a healthy way of, of, of being within your, your career and the relationship to career, right? You can seek out those experiences outside of the work, if that is what you so please, or within the, the, the work environment, if that's what you so please. But I think I think for me, the biggest thing that came about is, and I don't know if you've you've come across this, but a lot of us have a really black and white sense of of justice and injustice and what's right and what's wrong. Um, And so I called it like I saw it. I saw classmates of mine getting abused and bullied and harassed, and I called it like I saw it. I went to the director of grad studies and I said hey there's a problem we've got a bully in our department and I don't give a shit if he's bringing in all the grants um he's screwing over uh all of my colleagues lives and they're brilliant scientists and beyond that they're amazing incredible people who should not have to deal with you know um an emotionally stunted shell of a man who derives all of his worth from his publications um (laughs) and who thinks he's like the best person in the world because no one's ever had the gall to stand up to him and tell him, you need to stop. It's not okay what you're doing. Um, that got me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I, uh, I can imagine. Yeah, I can see how that would, would end in trouble. Um, I have also definitely been in trouble. <laughs> um, mine is more so of um, overuse of the word bigotry, <laughs> mm. which, you know, not technically not overuse, but in other people thinking in other people's minds right yes um yeah but I think that is one of the reasons so many autistic people get into advocacy and that sort of thing in that it's sometimes very hard to advocate for ourselves because Mm -hmm. we may not necessarily know or pick up on how we're feeling straight away 
it can depend on the situation and the I guess it, the way that we were raised sometimes we can be taught to ignore absolutely everything yes. about ourselves and it goes so much that we start to regu regulate our feelings and our discomfort to be not al ever allowed to think about but when we see other people facing injustice we're like no this is unacceptable uh, I to act on this bear. right now <laughs> i say my mama bear claws come out um yeah and i think that was the thing right is i had spent the entirety of my life people telling me that how i was experiencing the world wasn't true um and finally in grad school was coming to myself had witnessed people very close people uh to me be um be in emotionally abusive relationships had stored that as data right knew what emotional abuse looked like um so when i saw it in the academy no one was going to tell me otherwise that, that that's not what it was right i mean i could give you the, the literature in terms of romantic relationships um and, and show you the same signs in a lot of mentor mentee relationships and in fact i've said that to my supervisors before i was like you're a therapist if someone just told you the same exact thing about their partner you would be a bad therapist if you applauded them for persevering in the relationship, right? Like, obviously you're not gonna tell them what to do, but you would start to give them tools for them to recognize what is and isn't healthy in the relationship to their partner. Why are we not doing the same thing to people in their relationships to their careers in academia? Um, and so I think for me, not having those social filters and, and really to some degree, not having that like long-term you know, thinking about my own career in the future meant that I could at the NIH, um, you know, stand up to Francis Collins in front of everyone in cameras and be like, yo, this thing you just did, we noticed, early career researchers noticed, and it's not cool, so explain yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, when other people were like, who am I even allowed to say that because I'm working in government? I was like, screw that. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna have my voice not, you know, um, not, not say that the things that I'm seeing and telling it like it is. And, um, in a lot of ways, that's, what's, that's what got me into the, the, the work that I'm doing now. And like you said, I think a lot of fantastic efforts, uh, come from those of us who are non-normative in some way, or don't fit in spaces because we come into a culture and we're like, yo, you're super comfortable with this this is not great. This is not healthy. <laughs> like all of this, not okay. Let's do something about it or I'm out. Right. And, and I think that's the, that's the other unfortunate side is I think people should feel empowered to leave academia if that is what they want. And that is where they want their lives and their careers to take them. But when we claim to be fostering, you know, diversity and inclusion and claim to be wanting to represent everyone, um, and then continue to perpetuate structures and systems that actively push people out because they push them to the brink of burnout, um, you know, and, and, and mental distress and, and, and rock bottom, then we've got a problem. And then we need to talk about things and then we need to start doing something about it. Um, so anyway, I know I went off on a tangent there, but that, that I think that's why my experience in academia was so non-normative, so to speak, is because I am by, by default a non-normative person, right? Like mm -hmm. um, I'm queer, I'm trans, uh, I'm, I'm bisexual, I'm, I'm autistic. Uh, you know, you put all of those together. I'm a, 
I was a creative writer within an academic space where everyone was expecting me to write very clinical and objective language. I was like, I want to make people enjoy the things that, that reading the things that I'm writing. So anyway, I just, I, I could that was, about that was an important tangent, you know, <laughs> it, it, very important tangent to say. Um, I have a million and one things that I'd like to ask you, but we are definitely out of time. So before we wrap things up, is there anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> no, I think, you know, I, I sort of got on my soapbox and said what I needed to say. Um, the last thing I will say is um, I am on Twitter. My DMs are open. So is my email. Um, I love, love, love. My favorite part of what I do is what you and I are doing now is having a dialogue supporting others, uh, letting others know that their experiences um, are actually quite frequent in academia and that it's not okay for them to be having those experiences. Um, so if anyone at any point listening to this wants to reach out to me, wants to chat, wants to process, wants someone to listen to and validate um, their, their experiences and what they're feeling, um, I am more than happy to do so. Um, so please, please, please reach out to me. Um, if that is something that you would like to do. I'll also plug Future Research um, as, a, as a volunteer org. Um, we do some pretty cool and awesome work. Um, I'll plug PhD Balance. You guys are doing some pretty cool and awesome work. Um, so if people want to get involved and volunteer, it's a great way to find community. It's a great way to um, foster some resilience and build some support networks as well. So um, it's a good way to to put what, what would otherwise might feel like um, uh, energies that, that sort of you keep hitting a wall um, against, because it's a, it's a tough system out there. There are some wonderful labs, there are some wonderful fields and careers out there within the academic system. Um, they are rare. So uh, just I'll say that last thing is, um, you deserve to be discerning of the environment that you end up in, of the mentorship relationships that you create, um, and of the careers and spaces that you go into. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise, uh, because you value, um, not just as a scientist, but as a human being. So I'll end with that. And with thanking you and, and Sue and the rest of the team, of course. That's a, I think that's an amazing, amazing note to um, end on. Um, you are an absolutely amazing person. Thank you so much for coming. Um, for all of those watching or listening later on, um, this has been Grad Chat by PhD Balance. Um, we are live every Saturday, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, noon Pacific or 8 p.m. British time, which is my time. <laughs> um, and um, if you'd like to be a guest, uh, there is a Google form in the... Um, description of this video. So thank you very much for watching and we will see you next time. Bye.